Whether it's her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct has everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct. Your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Welcome to Unobscured, a production of iHeartRadio and Aaron Menke. Historian Emily Clark is Associate Professor of Religious Studies at Gonzaga University. She's our guest for this episode. Her scholarship focuses on African-American religions, American Catholic history, colonialism, religious material culture, and finally, something that we're big fans of around here, hauntings. Dr. Clark's first book, A Luminous Brotherhood, won multiple awards for its exploration of the Cirque Harmonique in New Orleans. She sat down to talk with researcher Carl Nellis about this fascinating circle of spiritualists and what their story tells us about spiritualism in America. But their conversation didn't stop there. Her deep understanding of spiritualism was invaluable for putting our story together, and we're so glad she could join us. We begin with her perspective on what it meant to be a spiritualist in 19th century America. This is the Unobscured Interview Series for Season 2. I'm Aaron Mankey. To be a spiritualist meant that you, one of the central things guiding your understanding of the religious and spiritual world was a belief in a spirit world beyond this material earthly one. Uh, And additionally, that communication with spirits in that world was possible. Um, And not just possible, but was something that, you know, if you could do, you should do. Uh, spiritualism was completely compatible with various forms of Christianity, um, especially liberal Protestantism. You'd find lots of Unitarians, Anglicans, Congregationalists who were also spiritualists. And for many spiritualists, God and Jesus resided in the spirit world. Um, in fact, the group I study, they receive messages from Jesus. Um, the spirit world, it could have heaven, it could have um, sort of an understanding of hell. Uh, for some, for some spiritualists, the spirit world had multiple heavens or multiple hells. Um, but I think the thing that really unites a lot of them together is this belief in a spirit world beyond this one, and that we can communicate with those who are in the spirit world. So there were people from all kinds of, especially Christian traditions, who were involved in the practice of spiritualism. Um, what kinds of things were people looking for when they attended a spiritualist seance beyond what they were getting from their religious traditions already? Answers. 
people went to a seance for answers. Um, for many of them, it was answers about the nature of reality, um, the nature of the material world, the spirit world, the relationship between the material world and the world beyond this one. Um, you know, answers for answers for questions that Christianity sort of answered, but also for many answered in a way that didn't feel complete. Um, so an understanding of the world beyond this one, in many cases, people went to seances for closure. You know, maybe it was shortly after a family member or a friend had died and, you know, you wanted to hear from them one last time, or you wanted assurance that wherever, you know, their entity now was, was okay. Um, so a seance could provide closure. And in a lot of cases, people wanted to sate their curiosity. Um, for those more casual seance goers, spiritualism offered a really interesting form of leisure activity. You know, how better to spice up a Thursday evening than going to a seance? Um, and, you know, maybe something really interesting and exciting will happen. So for some people, it was about curiosity. Um, and for some people, it was to try to debunk supposed charlatans. So it could be entertainment, but it could also be, you know, a really deep spiritual experience. And in that variety of reasons and motivations that someone might come to a seance, um, in conversation with that idea of people who are a part of a religious tradition coming, there's also all kinds of people who are involved in scientific investigation or the horizons of scientific knowledge um, who were involved at the beginning with spiritualism. Can you talk a little bit about how in the early 1800s, uh, mesmerism and related practices that were considered kind of new horizons of applied science of the human mind, of the human person, trying to observe and measure what was going on with our bodies and our minds. How did those new horizons of science lay the groundwork for what became spiritualism? So mesmerism um, is a great sort of religious, spiritual movement idea to put in conversation with spiritualism. So mesmerism was developed by a German physician, Franz Antoine Mesmer. Um, and he writes this absolutely fabulous doctoral dissertation um, that's throwing around terms like animal magnetism and animal gravity and planetary gravity. And it's just, it's an absolutely fabulous read for anyone who has spare time. Um, and what he ends up coming through is, is, you know, this thing that we call mesmerism, which more or less argues that there were invisible fluids uh, coursing through the bodies of humans, connecting them to the larger world around them. Um, and that good health, you know, physical health, mental health, emotional health, spiritual health, good health was the result of keeping those fluids in harmony. Um, so accessing and manipulating these fluids, um, both mesmerists, but also spirits, could affect and influence people's bodies um, and magnetizers. That's what uh, mesmerists would call those who could manipulate the fluids. Magnetizers could use the powers of their minds to harmonize the fluids in others. Uh, a number of spiritualists would first go into a mesmeric trance before communicating with spirits. A number of spiritualists didn't. Um, but either way, mesmerism really paved the way for spiritualism by offering this understanding of invisible spiritual forces that connected us to the world around us. 
and more importantly, that we could tap into those spiritual forces. And there were other invisible forces being harnessed and tapped and controlled and manipulated uh, in the mid-19th century, right, with things like the telegraph and with new applications of electricity. Can you talk a little bit about the way that in early spiritualism, there was kind of this conversation between religious discourses and science and technologies like the telegraph that all fed into what it meant to be a medium? Oh, yeah. So spiritualists were incredibly interested in technology. Um, technology was a way of showing legitimacy. Many spiritualists understood the communication process with the spirit world to be akin to electricity or the telegraph. Um, the beloved uh, spiritualist theologian Andrew Jackson Davis, uh, nicknamed the Poughkeepsie Seer because he's from Poughkeepsie um, in upstate New York, regularly talked about the spiritual telegraph um, and used used the the understanding of the telegraph to explain that you know it's totally possible that messages can be communicated without us seeing it happening. Um, you know, when a message is going through a telegraph wire, you, you don't necessarily know that. You know, it, it's it's happening without you being aware or being able to notice that something's happening. And spiritualism can be the same way. Messages can be communicated through these unseen but very powerful forces that, you know, scientifically we can measure and spiritually we can measure. Um, and it wasn't just things like the telegraph and electricity. There was this absolutely fabulous chemist uh, turned spiritualist, Robert Hare, who invented these fantastic um, machines that he called spiritoscopes, which would be used by a medium and they would have all of these dials um, and wheels and pulleys and sometimes on the dials would be letters and numbers. And through the communication of a spirit, a medium would manipulate this machine and they wouldn't be able to see what the message was saying, which was proof um, because the message is being not only mediated through the medium, but also through the machine. Like it's, this is a way of saying there's no fraud here. They're just doing as the spirit wills them. Um, and so, you know, machines like that could help um, show the legitimacy of spiritualism. Photography too, as photography really takes off in the 1850s, you've got the development of what gets photography, which is um, people taking photographs during seances or um, after trying to call forth a spirit, and you would get these really eerie photographs with sort of these disembodied, very um, kind of light figures in photographs um, that many people get exposed as frauds, and what they're doing is double exposure to some film. Mm -hmm. uh, there's the whole scandal of William Mumler, who's making tons of money off of fake spirit photography. Uh, and then you got planchettes and Ouija boards coming later. So there's always this interest in... Um, the way in which technology, where it, whether it's simple machines or something more complicated like how electricity works, spiritualists are engaging with that world and, you know, using it to help facilitate conversation with the spirit world. Mm -hmm. And those are some of the, the high-tech <laughs> kind of solutions of the day. Um, there are some other aspects of spiritualist material culture that play large roles and some turning points in spiritualist history. Can you talk a little bit about the the spirit cabinet and how that functioned in seances? 
Spirit cabinets were fascinating. Um, they could be these fantastic pieces of equipment or really, really simple. Um, so some spirit cabinets, especially the ones that you would see in public seances, were like these edited furniture wardrobes um, that might have a seat or a bench inside for the medium to sit. Um, so imagine, you know, a, a wardrobe that's sort of empty on the inside with the exception of this little seat for the medium to sit. Often the medium would be tied up um, to prove that, you know, sounds or manifested spirits were clearly not them duping the people because they were tied up. Um, for example, the Davenport brothers, the famous Davenport brothers, William and Ira, had this large cabinet in which both of them would be bound. And then the audience would hear musical instruments being played um, after they were closed in the cabinets. There were even tests to prove that they weren't playing the instruments themselves. One, uh, one of their tours, I think it was in Ireland, someone put blue paint on their hands um, and then expected, you know, to find all these blue handprints all over the, um, the trumpets and the trombones. Um, and there was nothing or other people would sprinkle flour on their laps. Um, and so, you know, the idea was, you know, it would be very obvious if they had moved because there would be flour everywhere. Um, and at the end of the seance, you know, they would open the cabinet and they're still there all tied up um, with the flour being intact or, you know, the blue paint isn't everywhere. In other cases, spirit cabinets were really simple. Um, in homes, sometimes people would refer to their spirit cabinet when really it was just a curtain pulled across the dead corner of a parlor. Um, and so sometimes these would be called spirit curtains, but they would frequently get referred to as spirit cabinets. And they were super common at materialization seances, um, which were increasingly in the 19th century quite popular um, at the at-home seance, where a materialization spirit or a materialization seance, you would have people interact in some cases with the material body of a spirit that would emerge. So you'd find these descriptions um, from people who are at a materialization seance, and they might notice by their feet what looks like a small white handkerchief has appeared. And very slowly, the handkerchief grows, and it turns into something bigger and bigger and bigger. And the next thing you know, the spirit of your deceased wife has materialized right next to you. Um, and then she hugs you or she kisses you. She grabs you. You can feel her material body. There's so many reports of these recently, um, of these widowers whose wives had recently died and they interact with their wife at a materialization seance at someone's spirit cabinet in their home. Uh, you would also have a materialization seance sometimes the spirit giving gifts. Um, there was this one... This one medium who frequently would call forth this spirit that she called Katie, and Katie would give plants and flowers to people um, that they could then take home. Mm -hmm. And so let's, with all these kind of pieces in place, some religion, some technology, some science, uh, some of the practices of what happened in a seance, um, let's start talking a little bit about some social context. Um, Spiritualism became a global movement fairly quickly. And though the Catholic Church in France and Spain cracked down on spiritualism, uh, there are even uh, some, some accounts of uh, spiritualist books being burned and that kind of thing. Um, do you have any comments on what made spiritualism's kind of distinctive set of beliefs and practices uh, attractive outside of America where it began? Uh, for instance, in France or in the Caribbean, some of those cultures that were interacting with the people that you write about in your book. 
Yeah. So there was something very countercultural about spiritualism, especially in any place that had a history of church and state being connected. Um, so, you know, spiritualism really eschews denominational institutional structure. While there were some attempts in places to make, you know, churches of spiritualism or a denomination of spiritualism, it really sort of um, is practiced in a way that works against that, that kind of formalization. So especially in a place like um, Great Britain, where there's a lot of spiritualists, or even in France, these countries that have a much lo- longer history of church and state being connected, here you've got this, this new countercultural religious movement that doesn't seem to fit in any neat little container or church. You know, it's hard to categorize exactly what's being um, done and what's going on because there's not a formal hierarchy. There's not a formal structure that you can interrogate. Um, so in that way, spiritualism really democratized religious authority in a completely new way. So many women were mediums and, you know, God forbid women have religious authority. Um, people who weren't white uh, could become mediums. And so you've got spiritual power in the hands of in the bodies of marginalized identities. This made it incredibly powerful for the people and thus pretty dangerous for the state. Mm-hmm. And that was not at all lost on early spiritualists or observers of spiritualism. Um, from very early on, spirits like Benjamin Franklin and George Washington and William Penn and other American statesmen were appearing at seance circles in America and, you know, speaking through trans lecturers and sometimes... Uh, maybe just addressing one or two people in a home seance. Um, the Fox sisters and the posts right at the beginning were talking with, you know, the, the founding fathers. Um, can you talk about a little bit about how those kinds of engagements with um, political ideas and in particular uh, statesmen and, and historical figures, what they say about spiritualism's relationship to history? So I think for one, it tells us that spiritualists had a very keen sense of history. You know, obviously they were very well educated. They had read about these figures. They had read the writings of these figures. But I think the thing that really strikes me about the appearance of people like Benjamin Franklin, George Washington, William Penn, all these other important political figures at seances, what really strikes me is that by communicating with famous spirits, spiritualists inserted themselves into history. You know, they were in conversation then with Franklin, with Washington, with Penn. They were in conversation with their ideas. Um, They were receiving information direct from the source, even if that source had died decades, centuries before. Um, So spiritualists could become part of that story. They could become part of that story of human progress, even if it was just a small group that maybe no one would ever hear of them, you know, Benjamin Franklin knew who they were, or the spirit of Benjamin Franklin knew who they were. And so they got to feel like they were part of something so much bigger than themselves. And as spiritualists, right from the get-go, late, 14, late 1840s, early 1850s, as they did insert themselves into these histories and into conversations and discourses in the church, in science, um, what were some of the early responses to spiritualism? How did how did historians, how did politicians, how did churchmen or other believers respond to these insertions of spiritualism in, spiritualists into their stories? So I guess the easy, the easy answer is it varied. Yeah. Um, 
with its association with things like liberal politics, you know, so many, a lot of the mediums, especially in the U.S. on the East Coast, were women who received a lot of messages that had to do with um, women's rights, uh, received a lot of messages that had to do with abolition. So with its association with liberal politics, spiritualism was banned in some places. Uh, Southern states like Alabama actually tried to make spiritualism illegal. Um, By taking religious authority away from formal church structures and, you know, the, the traditional purveyors of religious authority, you know, more or less white educated men, white educated um, in seminaries men, by taking religious authority away from um, these more formal structures and placing it in the bodies, the hands of mediums themselves. I mean, there were a lot churches really didn't like about spiritualism. They could see it as a dangerous threat. There were a number of ministers who worried that spiritualism was dangerous because perhaps it was encouraging interaction with demonic spirits. Um, There were some liberal Protestant communities and liberal political communities, um, especially in the Northeast, that found that spiritualism could be compatible with their politics, um, with their theology, that, you know, why not have spirits like Jesus also up there? Why, why wouldn't the spirit of, you know, assassinated President Abraham Lincoln continue to share his political ideas with us? Um, but then you also had those who saw it as just so, so dangerous. Um, so there's this great article in America, a Catholic Jesuit publication that's still around today, that came out in, I think it was the early 1900s, and it, it said that spiritualism and Ouija boards were dangerous. Because spirits in heaven would have so many other things to do than communicate with people through a board game. You know, this, this priest is writing like, come on, I mean, spirits in heaven, they, they got so many other things to do, dancing around on clouds, they're not going to communicate to people through a board game. And so the only spirits that are probably interacting with people through these boards are hellish spirits. Mm. Um, and what I just think is funny is I imagine the priest who wrote that article would be so pleased with the movie The Exorcist, which, you know, a Ouija board invites the demonic possession and then a priest saves the day. Um, though even in there, there were exceptions to this. Um, so the Catholic Church in New Orleans in the 1840s, um, for a little while, was actually totally okay with the development of this mesmerist society. There's this mesmerism society that begins in uh, New Orleans, and a couple of local priests were actually members. And they would sometimes recommend mesmeric healings to some of their parishioners who weren't doing well. They later get told that they need to stop doing that. And they were a small minority anyways. But even in a setting like the Catholic Church, which is seeing spiritualism, seeing mesmerism as incredibly dangerous, there are actual Catholics, in some cases, even Catholic clerics who are like, I don't know, there might actually be something to this. And it wasn't just the the church responding, like you said, the state of Alabama at one point banned spiritualism. What other kinds of responses were spiritualists getting? Maybe like in the Southern press, or you know, kind of in in general discourses through the South, around New Orleans, but in the other states, what were people saying about spiritualism? So one of the really interesting places um, where spiritualism gets talked about in Louisiana and the broader Gulf region is the the secular New Orleans papers. Um, So papers like the Daily Picayune. And the Daily Picayune regularly advertised spiritualist lectures 
Um, you would find all the time in the, you know, the calendar provided by the paper upcoming lectures, um, which were actually pretty common in the 1850s through the 1850s. Tons of people are coming to New Orleans to talk about spiritualism. You also find articles in the secular papers about the alleged medicinal value of mesmerism and spiritualism. You can also find a lot of stories that are trying to expose um, mesmerism or spiritualism. Um, There's a number of stories that are trying to expose it as a wag, which is just a 19th century term for fraud that, you know, spiritualism is a total wag. Um, And so you have a variety of responses just coming in people's newspapers, which sort of left it up to the reader what they wanted to conclude about spiritualism. Now, if all you read was the um, official Catholic newspaper, you would think spiritualism was, you know, basically the devil on earth. Um, But if you were just reading the secular paper, you would see a variety of responses about it. Mm -hmm. What led to something like a whole state outlying the practice? What that ends up coming down to is the association of spiritualism with liberal politics. So especially since so many spiritualists coming out of the East Coast are pretty outspoken about abolition, are pretty outspoken about women's rights. Um, You even have a number of spiritualists who are communicating with the spirits of deceased Native Americans and they're receiving messages that acknowledge the fact that we white Americans have stolen land and we have dispossessed them of not just their land, but also their culture. Um, Now it's important to note that a lot of those messages are also pretty tinged with racism because the medium is talking in at times guttural sounds. Um, But there's this very interesting acknowledgement of the fact that America is not fair when it comes to all of the inhabitants um, of the country. And so if you've got a religious practice that is frequently identifying injustices and you're in a state that is making a lot of money off of injustice, namely slavery, Spiritualism is going to be persona non grata there. So let's move to the the community that you focus your book on and go to New Orleans in the 1840s and the 1850s. Can you tell us about the Afro-Creole community and the spiritualist group that grew up in that community in those early years of spiritualism? Yeah, so New Orleans in the 1850s was full of life. I mean, this is a place that is racially and ethnically diverse with its history as a French colony, then a Spanish colony, then briefly a French colony again before being purchased by the United States. It is a center of cultural exchange. It's a place of cultural innovation. Just look at the food traditions um, with all the cultural blending and the significant influence of African diasporic culture and things like gumbo. Um, It was a progressive place with a very large free black population Under Spanish rule, um, there were very lax manumission laws, 
And so the population of free black men and women in New Orleans grows incredibly fast and quickly. And it is one of the, um, it's the sites of one of the biggest populations of um, free black men and women in North America. Um, but also with that, it's a very violent place. It had been home to the Deep South's largest slave market. Uh, so the city has a lot of tensions because of all of that diversity. Um, in some cases, certain streets were basically dividing lines between different ethnic populations in the 19th century. Uh, so you'll hear New Orleanians or Tulane talking about things like the neutral ground, which typically just refers to the grassy median on the city's boulevards, especially along streetcar lines. But originally, the term neutral ground referred to the medium of Canal Street that was basically the dividing line between what was known as the American district of the city, where a lot of the new um, Anglo-American arrivals to the city were living. It's now the central business district and the old Creole part of town, uh, what we now call the French Quarter. So you've got you've got a lot of tension going on with all of this racial and ethnic diversity. And so kind of in the heart of all of that, you've got the city's Afro-Creole community, which was it is a, a vibrant one in large part because of all this history. Uh, these were families that typically had a mixed background, African, French, Spanish, Haitian, Native American. Um, they were often educated in large part because of that longer history of freedom. Um, but at the same time, you would have some Afro-Creole families who would still have some members who were enslaved that they might be trying to you know, save up the money to purchase that family member's freedom. Uh, there were a few members of the Cirque Harmonique whose fathers owned slaves. No members of the group I looked at um, owned slaves, but they had fathers and grandfathers who owned slaves, sometimes extended family members. Mm. Um, The Afro-Creole community was Catholic. They were incredibly Catholic. Uh, The Catholic Church offered a a sense of home and family um, for New Orleans' Black and mixed-race population starting in the 18th century. Back when the church was a little more liberal there in its earlier days, there were all these rules about how priests were not supposed to baptize um, children born out of wedlock. Well, when you think about slavery, one of slavery's goals is to tear down families and make it impossible to have a family. Um, These priests would often baptize kids that they technically weren't supposed to because they were trying to help rebuild a sense of family. Um, so many in the Afro-Creole community were very, very Catholic. And so there's this way in which they very much belonged to New Orleans. They reflect and represent so much of all of that racial and ethnic diversity, but they also didn't belong. Um, many historians talk of the Afro-Creole community as one that was between the racialized categories of white and slave. Neither of those categories really describe them, though elements of each category might. In, in this city, so rich with life, but riven with these conflicts, um, you talk about the Cirque Monique rising up. And you describe how it comes together around the work of a medium named J.B. Valmore and a man named Henri Ray, who becomes a medium in his own right. Who were Valmore and Henri Ray? 
So J.B. Valmore and Henri-Louis Ray were two members of the Afro-Creole community with a pretty extensive network within the Afro-Creole community. So Valmore was a blacksmith and a well-known healer. Um, his home was also his blacksmith shop, was also his seance meeting location. Um, he kept his seances public, too, which made him a bit of a target. Uh, the police raided at least one of his seances on charge that he was practicing voodoo. Uh, but he also made friends in high places. He, um, in the 1850s, he heals this Italian bishop who was traveling through the city. This bishop had seen the finest doctors in Europe, and none of them could cure him. Uh, this bishop had completely lost his voice. And through just simple laying on of hands, Balmore cured him. Um, so Valmore is kind of the center of, for the Afro-Creole practice of spiritualism, he's at the center of it for the earlier part of its history. Um, he died in 1969 before the Sir Carmenique, the group I look at, reached their heyday. Um, in fact, about a month before he died, the group received a message, which Valmore took to be a prophecy about his death. Um, and after he died, his spirit began to communicate with the group. So he remains a leader from the other side. And his leadership from the spirit world actually reveals a lot of really interesting social things about the Sir Carmenique. Apparently, Valmore and Henri disagreed on whether or not the seances should be public. Valmore's were public. Um, and Henri apparently didn't uh, agree with that. After Valmore dies, his spirit delivers messages that more or less say, yeah, I think you're right. We should probably keep these private. Um, and I just find it really interesting how after Valmore dies, he now agrees with those who are still alive. Um, so the man he's agreeing with is Henri Louis Ri. Uh, Henri is the son of Haitian refugees. He's educated. Uh, he serves a term in the Louisiana legislature during uh, the tenure of the Sir Carmenique. Um, he's a husband. He's a father. He was a soldier during the Civil War. And his parents are really well connected in the city's Afro-Creole community. Um, his father, Bartholomew, um, is a pretty important guy. He serves on a really important school board, which may not sound like a big deal, but the school board was for the first free school for the city's black population. Uh, it was supported by an Afro-Creole Catholic board um, and some of the city's most beloved writers, thinkers served on the school board or taught in the school. Unlike his father, though, Henri would leave Catholicism behind. Um, his seance records reveal so many messages about the greed and the vanity of Catholicism and its priests. Uh, in fact, he gets this really, at least to me, funny message this one day from the spirit of a French revolutionary priest, uh, Hugh Felicité de Lamennais, who tells Henri, yeah, I know your wife Adele is wanting your son to be raised in the Catholic Church, and I know you're concerned about that. But don't worry, your son is going to laugh at the absurdities of the church, and it's going to be fine, and he's going to follow your path. So both Valmore and Henri are well-known in the Afro-Creole community, either because of their own status as a healer or because of their familial connections. Um, and so they, they're really good guides for us working through 
you know, this very tumultuous, uh, tumultuous time of reconstruction, New Orleans. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned that one of the grounds for raiding a Valmore seance was a charge of practicing voodoo. Can, can you talk a little bit about the religious life of New Orleans in the antebellum years? What aspects of it were maybe racialized or criminalized? When we, when we think about kind of occult New Orleans, maybe we do think of Voodoo and Marie Laveau and some of those figures who've stuck around in our public consciousness. Um, can you describe that kind of religious life of New Orleans, maybe through uh, Ray uh, and his, his connection to Sisters of the Holy Family and what the social status of these groups that his family was a part of, um, what it was like for, for, for Black, for Afro-Creole, for white New Orleanians? So the religious world of 19th century New Orleans is a diverse one. Um, so obviously you've got voodoo and Marie, Le and Marie Laveau, who are a huge part of the occult in 19th century New Orleans. Um, the woman known as Marie Laveau was actually two women, a mother and a daughter, which is why she, you know, shockingly lives for almost 100 years, because mm. it's actually two women. Um Voodoo was, it is a religion with really old roots leading to Africa. It's similar but different from the voodoo practice in Haiti. And in the 19th century, it was different from what most people think of when they hear the term voodoo today. When you hear the term voodoo today, people think of just nothing but voodoo dolls, which actually were not really much of a thing um, in 19th century voodoo. Voodoo had a cosmology and a pantheon of spirits with both African and Catholic influence. Um, but it wasn't an institutionalized religion. It didn't have, you know, a formal institution, hierarchy, whatnot. So it holds that in common with spiritualism. And it's actually, to me, really interesting that voodoo develops, but it's also not surprising that voodoo develops, um, in part because it was illegal for so much of its history. Um, under French colonial rule, Catholicism was the only legally allowed religion. But you also had the development of voodoo. You also had a variety of African religious traditions being practiced throughout the Gulf, throughout Louisiana. Uh, Congo Square, now Louis Armstrong Park, uh, was well known for its weekend African music and dancing. So even with, you know, this law that states that everyone needs to be converted to Catholicism, the religious world of black New Orleanians is a diverse one with a lot of spiritual alternatives. And even within Catholicism, black New Orleanians didn't always find a welcoming home. Um, some priests were more politically and socially progressive than others. Um, most white Catholics were fine worshiping alongside uh, black Catholics. There's a lot of tourists and visitors to New Orleans in the antebellum period who write a lot about how surprised they were to see, you know, places like St. Louis Cathedral being completely integrated. And you've got white parishioners sitting next to black parishioners. So it's an, so Catholicism's integrated, but that doesn't mean that it was always welcoming. Um, so, like, you weren't supposed to baptize children born outside of marriage, um, but some priests did, which would endear them to the black Catholic population. Um, but, you know, there were a lot of places in the Catholic Church that were closed off to black Catholics. Uh, so, for example, mixed race women were not allowed to join 
the local orders of women religious, nuns or sisters. Um, so actually a group of Catholic women founded their own order. Um, this was the Sisters of the Holy Family, an active community of women religious still today. The group took their initial vows in the antebellum period, but they were denied the right to wear a habit for 30 years. Mm. And that might sound like a small thing, not being able to wear a habit, but by wearing a habit, you know, American culture had long denied black women the right to respectability. And by wearing a habit, it marked the wearer as a good woman of God and was a good critique to that denial of respectability. Now, the bishop who didn't let the sisters of the Holy Family wear a habit for 30 years um, was this this bishop named uh, Napoleon Perchet. And Perchet didn't only have some issues, some run-ins with the Sisters of the Holy Family. He also hated spiritualism. Uh, He wrote a number of editorials in the New Orleans Catholic paper that were all about the dangers of spiritualism. And so there's this interesting way in which Bishop Perchet wanted to be the sole religious authority in town. Uh, He was wary of any black citizens gaining spiritual power, be it through his own church with the Sisters of the Holy Family, or be it through communication with the spirits, through spiritualism. So let's jump to um, when Bartholomew dies. Can you describe the encounter that, that Henri has with his father's spirit that kind of shock him out of his previous opinion of spiritualism, which was a little bit, uh, a little bit of mockery, a little bit of dismissal. But then he has this encounter that makes him want to seek out a spiritualist medium. Can you describe that for us? Yeah. So um, Henri, I find it hilarious that Henri was originally really skeptical of spiritualism. Um, and he writes about this in this really long, like 20 page long uh, autobiographical essay that he put in one of the seance record books where he talks about his own history with spiritualism. He talks about a couple of his siblings also dabbling it a little bit. And Sort of the prologue before that powerful experience is in 1852, his father dies. Henri is just 21 or 22 years old. And just an hour after Bartholomew's death, Henri sees his father's spirit. And he goes to embrace him. And just as that happens, the spirit disappears. And Henri chalks this up to grief. Um, Later on, his father's spirit would reference this experience at the seance table to sort of remind Henri, you've known for a long time about the presence of spirits. So he has that experience when he's 21. He kind of chalks it up to grieving and remains skeptical of spiritualism. Despite that, and despite apparently in his essay, he talks about how he successfully levitated a table one day. (laughs) And he's like, "Ah, I don't know. I'm still not convinced. Um, He goes to a seance and he mocks it, but the spirits have a sense of humor. Um, So Henri puts his hand down on the table and he says in a mocking way, I'm a medium and a spirit shakes him. And that sort of wakes him up. He later identifies the spirit as um, the spirit of his deceased father-in-law. Um, And he's like, whoa. So he seeks out a local um, spiritualist, a woman by the name of Sister Louise. 
and attends some training with her, gets some guidance with her. And at his first meeting with Louise, he just writes and writes and writes and writes and writes all under the powerful influence of spirits. And as he starts to get tired, I mean, we don't do a lot of handwriting anymore. We're always on our computers, but handwriting pages and pages and pages is, you know, your, your arm gets tired. Um, he gets, begins, he begins to get tired and the spirit of his father, Bartholomew comes to him and assures him, you know, you can keep writing. You're not really tired. Me and the other spirits will sustain you. And so it's sort of this progression of experiences that convince him. And then the really funny thing is his wife goes through the exact same experience. She's pretty skeptical at first. Um, Adele Rose, um, Re, she was from the Crocker family, which is also pretty well connected in uh, religious life. Uh, it's possible that her father was, um, it's possible that her father kept a mistress, that mistress being Marie Laveau. Um, but Adele Rose, so she's, you know, seeing her husband develop all of these um, abilities of a medium. He's a clairvoyant, you know, he sees spirits all the time, including on their, you know, uh, their front porch. But she's still not convinced herself. And then this one evening, they're laying in bed and, you know, he's trying to talk to her about spiritualism and convince her. And he says, OK, you know, if there's a spirit in the room, knock somewhere. And shortly after that, they feel this loud thump on their headboard. And Henri turns to Adele and says, do you believe in spiritualism now? And all of this is cataloged in this long autobiographical essay that he wrote. Um, and so you get this, like, it wasn't an easy conversion to spiritualism for him. You know, he had to be convinced. On J.B. Van Moore's side, there is a really dramatic story that you tell in the book when the spiritualist, uh, who's becoming better and better known, originally from London and then came to New York as an actress and then became active in spiritualist circles and started touring Emma Harding, who will later be Emma Harding Britain. Uh, she comes on a Southern tour and arrives in New Orleans and gives a seance and has an encounter with J.B. Valmore. Can you describe that encounter for us? Oh, yeah, that encounter's great. Um, so in the late antebellum period, uh, famous spiritualist Emma Harding Britain She's delivering a lecture in New Orleans at one of the fraternal lodges. Uh, she's one of the most well-known spiritualists of the 19th century. Um, her name pops up quite a bit in the local paper advertising some of the other lectures that she's given. I can't remember if this is her first lecture in town or one of the later ones, um, but she comes to New Orleans more than a few times. Uh, she writes this huge encyclopedic book on spiritualism in the 1870s, which is honestly one of our best resources on the practice because it contains all these letters and reports from all around the country. So anyway, she's delivering this lecture in 1859 or so, and she begins to get tired. Um, now she'd been lecturing on spiritualism and demonstrating for a while now. And, um, you know, I can tell you as a college professor, lecturing is more tiring than people might think, uh, especially if you've got a performative element to it. So she's tiring and her spiritualist demonstrations are suffering. As this is going on, a black Creole man was walking by and he's supposedly seized by a spiritual force that pulls him into the auditorium. Uh, Emma invites him to come up on the stage, uh, as she says, because he is full of electricity. Um, 
And this black Creole man is Valmore. Uh, and he and Emma Harding have this spiritual affinity, it seemed. So he remains with her on stage and she uses that connection between them to draw power. And she continues these demonstrations for a couple more hours, just leaving the audience enthralled. So for a lot of people, like this isn't a big surprise for them. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, this was a guy who was a pretty well-known healer who was known for being a bit of an expert in these alternative religious practices. Um, And... You know, it certainly isn't surprising those who end up becoming involved with the Cirque Harmonique. In one of their Sans record books, there is this little, not really a notepad, but it's a couple of pieces of scrap paper that describes some of the curative practices of Valmore, um, some of the cures that he would use. So for many, it was just sort of like, well, obviously he could do that. Obviously, he could be her battery. And so what are the events that lead up to the formation of the Circumonique uh, with Valmore and with Rhee and with the other people that they brought together to form this group? So there were some other spiritualists in New Orleans at the time. There were white Creoles who were practicing spiritualism, who were doing their own thing, that are pretty separate from the Circumonique, the Afro-Creole spiritualists. Valmore sort of goes between the two groups a little bit. Um, it seems like what brings the Cirque Harmonique originally together, and it's kind of not clear who all is a member at what time, um, but it seems like Henri's own conversion and sort of this famous interaction between Valmore and Emma Harding sort of galvanize a small group of Afro-Creole men to start practicing, um, to getting to get together, hold seances, and have, through that process, um, these really rich, politically-infused conversations about the world. And you mentioned that in that early seance with Sister Louise, Henri starts writing and writing and writing. Can you talk about the way that receiving those messages through writing was really significant for the Cirque Harmonique? So the Cirque Harmonique, over the course of their roughly 20 years of practice, fill something like 35 or 37 books with messages. Um, If you stack all of the seance record books up, um, it reaches around my rib cage. Mm. Uh, And I'm not overly short. I'm not super tall, but I'm not that short. Um, So we're talking thousands and thousands and thousands and thousands of pages of messages from the world beyond this one. And writing all of that out takes time. And so the process of writing all of that out is clearly very important. Um, There's a way in which the Spirit's messages don't become really real until they're written down, until there's a material record of them that can then later be consulted and referred to. But there's something very important about that process of cataloging what the Spirit's had to say. 
And in part, the spirits tell them that. There are a number of messages where the spirits say, write all of this down. Uh, so, you know, okay, chief, we will. <laughs> and in terms of the message that was being communicated, one of the things that you emphasize in your book is that so many of these figures were, the, the spirits that were appearing were giving them messages about what they came to call the idea, which was politically charged and inspiration, motivation, really addressing the social and political world of the Sarkarmonique. What was the idea to this group of spiritualists? So what they would call the idea was a concept that their messages never straightforwardly defined, but it's referenced frequently. And that element alone is really significant. The fact that they didn't need to ever define it meant that it was very clear to everybody involved what the idea was. So they received so many messages that made mention of the idea. And when you put all these together, it becomes clear that this was a concept that meant humanitarian progress, brotherhood, egalitarianism, equality, harmony. Um, it was similar to some other ideas that are going around 19th century America, um, ideas of millennial progress, this desire to build the kingdom of God here on earth in the U.S. Um, the, idea, the idea would require work. Um, you know, to make the idea a reality on earth would, would not just happen. Um, the triumph of the idea would require free thought, democracy, equality. Um, you know, the progressive march of humanity is not going to happen on its own. And the idea, the idea could be trusted. The idea was what structured the spirit world and thus should be the foundation of our own. Uh, it was, as one spirit called it, a blazing torch. Um, you know, it's light, it's luminous. Um, for example, a few spirits describe the Emancipation Proclamation as a manifestation of the idea on earth. Um, and so it's, it's an idea that comes from the spirit world, and it's an idea that needs to become manifest here in our world. So through something like the idea, and you talked about how this was similar to uh, other concepts or movements in progressive discourse, we end up with the debates over uh, the expansion of slave power and the, the conflict leading up to the Civil War. When, when the Civil War breaks out, you talk about how the Sarkarmonique broke up for a time. Kind of, uh, what was Henri doing during the war? And what was it that convinced them that they couldn't keep meeting? Yeah, so the very first book of the Sir Carmonique Seance records covers four years. Um, and actually, no, it covers like five years, in part because you've got Henri's service in the Civil War um, breaking it up. So Henri and his brother Octave uh, and others, many other Afro-Creole men in the city, joined the war effort. Um, but until New Orleans was seized by the Union in 1862, when they joined the Louisiana Native Guards, the Black Regiment for the city, they had to muster for the Confederacy, which was not what they wanted. They joined the war effort because they felt strongly about defending their home. 
Um, but they disobeyed the Confederacy's orders. As the Union was approaching the city um, in 1862, the Confederacy orders all of the troops out and the black troops stay. Uh, they disobey and they want to stay with their homes and protect their homes and protect their families. Um, a committee of four in the Louisiana Native Guards, including Henri and his brother Octave, were the group that surrendered their weapons to the Union when the Union comes into New Orleans. But then they quickly got them back because now they were able to serve on the side they wanted to. Henri served in the Union Army until he was discharged due to illness in 1863. Uh, he's discharged before one of the big battles um, in terms of the action that the Louisiana Native Guard saw, uh, which was the battle at Port Hudson. Um, while he was serving in the Army, Henri and others didn't seem to keep much in terms of spiritualist records, but it seems pretty clear that Henri at least practiced some. Uh, he received a message while at Camp Strong that he later transcribed in his records. Uh, it's a message that he gets in 1862 from the spirit of French revolutionary priest Hugh Felicité de Laminay, who more or less tells him, you know, like, keep in the struggle. Uh, he also publishes a poem in the local liberal newspaper in 62 while he's serving in the army. And this poem sounds so, so, so much like the seance records. Um, in the poem, he commends a number of figures, Jesus, um, the theologian Emanuel Swedenborg, Joan of Arc. These are all figures that come up in the seance records, either as spirits who appear or figures to admire. And the poem heralded all the ideals that the Sir Carmenique and the spirits held dear. Liberty, peace, progress, fraternity. So while there's not a lot of formal messages being received, there's these couple little things going on in Henri's world, um, his immediate world during his time in the Union Army, that would indicate that spiritualism is never out of his mind. And I read that uh, Colonel Daniels, who was a white officer put in charge of the Native Guards, in his reports and in his diary, he talks about Henri uh, as a spiritualist, as a great medium. Um, and I was fascinated when I found that, too, meaning he was practicing. And, and there are a couple of times when Colonel Daniels, in his diary, notes that he sat for a seance with Henri, which is awesome. So he wasn't meeting with the Sir Carmenique, but... Clearly, he was, as you say, still practicing as a medium and following these spirits and listening to their messages and those kinds of things. That was that was really fascinating to learn. Yeah, I mean, there's when you're a spiritualist, you're a spiritualist. Uh, you're not only doing this, you know, one or two days a week. This is this is the way you understand the world. Yeah. Um, so you, you talk about the Union Army uh, taking New Orleans. That was under the direction of General Benjamin Butler. And he becomes a major figure for the life in New Orleans under Union Army rule because he's the commanding officer and, and sets all kinds of policies. Can you talk about uh, who Benjamin Butler was and what he did to handle the administration of New Orleans? Uh, I'm interested in this in part become, because he, becomes, uh, he comes back into the story of spiritualism later as a political advisor for Victoria Woodhull in New York. So who he was, what his political thinking was like, really influences spiritualism. And a couple key points here for the Sir Carmenique and later for Victoria Woodhull. So who was Benjamin Butler and, and 
what was life in New Orleans like under his uh, governorship? So General Benjamin Butler is the Union general who oversees New Orleans while it is being um, occupied by the Union as the Civil War is going on. He serves later in the U.S. Congress. And one's opinion of Butler uh, was very much influenced by one's opinion of the Civil War. Uh, And he also made a lot of decisions in New Orleans that also just made him a little unpopular to the locals. Um, Honestly, it kind of seems like he wasn't really cut out for military rule. Um, So his order to enlist black men in the Union Army is met with much acclaim. Um, You know, he's seen as then a friend of the Southern black population. But then he didn't really know what to do with escaped, enslaved still enslaved men and women who left Louisiana plantations and sought refuge in the Union-occupied city. Um, And he describes them as contraband, not people, and sent many of them back to where they had just escaped. Um, And his his occupation of the city was described as a scourge uh, for white Confederate-leaning, Confederate-supporting New Orleanians. Uh, They gave him the the nickname of Beast. He was known as Beast Butler. One of the decisions that made him really unpopular um, with the Confederate loyalists in um, New Orleans was he passes this this rule that allows him and others in charge to treat any woman who insults a Union soldier as a prostitute. So any woman, any Confederate... Um, woman who says something disparaging to a Union soldier will now be treated as a woman of loose morals. Um, he also said some really terrible anti-Semitic things about the city's Jewish population. Um, so we should always keep that in mind when thinking about Butler, mm-hmm. um, especially with his later work in the U.S. Congress to pass legislation like the Ku Klux Klan Act, which outlawed the group. So he's he's a complicated figure. Um And I feel like anyone's opinion of him would change with every decision that man made. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And he was followed in the administration over New Orleans by General Banks. Um, Can you mention or, or maybe describe the influence that Banks had on the 1864 Constitutional Convention when uh, they were trying to figure out under what laws and under what policies New Orleans would be governed going forward? So the Constitutional Convention of 1864 was, you know, something that brought a lot of people hope and something that brought a lot of people disappointment. I mean, it's just in many ways, the Constitutional Conventions of the 1860s in Louisiana are a hot mess. Um, You've got... You've got people obviously hoping for things like um, the outlawing of slavery to be put into the Constitution. Um, And you've got people who are serving that are pretty, pretty staunchly in support of slavery continuing. Um, You've got throughout the 1860s and 70s, dual governments at times working in the state. So in 1864, there's a lot of questions about what exactly is going to be made law, um, which then impacts who is allowed to vote, who is allowed to serve in um, the state and in local political governing bodies. 
Um, you've got people hooting and hollering during the Constitutional Convention. Um, and it's not really until the Constitutional Convention of 1866 that things start to become a little more clear about where the state's constitution is going to end up. And it's, it's in the spring of 1865 that the Confederate Army surrenders at Appomattox and Lincoln is assassinated. Can you talk about the seance where the spirit of Abraham Lincoln first appears to the Sir Carmonique yeah, so Abraham Lincoln's first appearance to the Sir Carmonique is on December 7th, 1865, about seven months after his assassination. It wasn't a particularly busy seance. Uh, he's not the only spirit who delivers a message that day. St. Vincent de Paul and a few others also appeared. And he delivers the kind of message that you would expect. Uh, he identified that particular day as one of fasting, prayer, and thanksgiving for post-war peace and freedom. Uh, he would do stuff like that during his uh, term as president as well, declaring, you know, days of fasting and Thanksgiving. His spirit noted how he was glad that they had broken the chains of slavery, but he also recognized that there was a lot of work still to be done. Um, you know, we shouldn't start patting ourselves on the back just yet. He also talks about how those who tried to stop the progress of freedom would regret those decisions after death, where, you know, those who had suffered for righteous causes would be blessed by God and happy in the spirit world. You know, freedom was something that was created and ordained by God. And while freedom originated in heaven, uh, his spirit talks about how it's intended to reign on earth too. Um, and then he signs off the message like he does many of them uh, with your brother and friend, Abraham Lincoln. And that idea that there are people opposing the cause of freedom is not abstract to the Circomonique and to Afro-Creoles and the black community in New Orleans. Um, you describe in your book the Mechanics Institute riot in 1866. Can you relay those events to us now and, and talk a little bit about how that's tied into the 1864 Constitutional Convention, but then also how it became kind of a touchstone for the Sir Carmonique in the following years? Yeah, so, so the Civil War and Reconstruction changes a lot about life in New Orleans. Um, you know, as... With the end of the Civil War, um, you've got a very interesting thing that starts happening in the South. And that is you have black local and state politicians. Um, you had the long vote over whether or not black men could vote, um, which there's this really interesting moment. I think it's in the, oh, I can't remember which constitutional convention it's in, but um Black representatives who were elected are in the chamber and they're not allowed to vote because the neo-Confederate white politicians aren't letting them vote. Um, and so you've got a little bit of a hullabaloo going on there in the Constitutional Convention because you have people who are not being allowed to sit down and, you know, do their jobs. Um, but, you know, this starts to get settled a little bit. So you've got black men 
in the legislative chambers making important decisions. Um, in fact, Louisiana would be the first state to have a black governor. Uh, when PBS Pinchback took over after Henry Clay Warmoth's impeachment, uh, Henry Clay Warmoth is an interesting political figure in New Orleans history. He presents himself as a friend to the New Orleans black population. And then after he's elected, he begins to court favor with former Confederates uh, to try to keep in power. He was just a really power hungry dude. Um, and so you've got this interesting, hopeful, auspicious feel um, of, you know, we might actually get get some rights. Um, but with this new political power, uh, white supremacy d- doesn't go away. It continues really strong and it continues with violence. Um, and the 1866 Mechanics Institute riot, which really historians, we, we need to just rename this thing a massacre, um, is a horrible example of this. So on July 30th, 1866, uh, a group of primarily black delegates meet to revise the state constitution um, because they want to make sure that it definitely includes black male suffrage. Um, and so this is intended to be a constitutional convention session at the Mechanics Institute. And the day begins with, you know, some fanfare. There's like a little parade um, of black New Orleanians marching to the Mechanics Institute to celebrate this. This is going to be a great day. But it's not. It ends up being an absolutely horrid, horrid day because a white mob aided by local police and firefighters storm the building and massacre many of the delegates inside. Um, Most of the delegates were were unarmed, but that white supremacist mob was heavily armed. Uh, Over 40 people died that day, almost all of them black. Uh, Three local white allies at the meeting also died that day, including a minister and a local dentist, uh, Dr. A.P. Dosti, who is a well-known thinker of liberal politics. And and violence at the the Mechanics Institute riot was not alone. You know, in 1874, you have the Battle of Liberty Place, during which the White League, um, a white supremacist organization, takes control of New Orleans and is like cutting telegraph wires and so that messages can't get out. Um, they slaughter the, at that point, integrated police, um, kill some people who are just walking by. There's a black carpenter who's killed with his own hatchet, um, by white leaguers who are just like marauding through the city. Um, and so the Mechanics Institute, violence is not alone. Also in the summer of 1866, you have the Memphis massacre, which is just this horrendous white supremacist slaughter of black Memphis citizens and destruction of black owned property. Um, And violence like this in 1866 ended up galvanizing a new brand of reconstruction politics nationally, uh, which then worked harder to promote black civil rights, though even those politics are short-lived and end in 1877 with the close of Reconstruction. For the Sir Carmonique, the Mechanics Institute riot became an incredibly important event. The martyrs of that day's violence often delivered messages uh, the spirit of one martyr, uh, Victor, and they call themselves martyrs. And other spirits refer to these men who died at the Mechanics Institute uh, martyrs. They're martyrs for the idea. Uh, one of these spirits, Victor LaCroix, um, a very well-connected Afro-Creole man uh, whose body was mutilated by some of the white mob and his, va- and his valuables uh, were stolen. Uh, a watch that he had inherited was stolen. 
uh, his spirit afterwards noted how their blood, the blood of the martyrs, flooded the streets of New Orleans that day, but that their suffering was not in vain because it prompted a response from U.S. Congress. Um, Another one, Dr. A.P. Dosti, that white dentist who supported black suffrage, he delivers a number of messages over the years, um, many of which recall how he was killed like an animal. His death was particularly gruesome. The white mob was particularly not happy seeing um, fellow white men supporting black liberty. Um, Dosti's body is just, he's like shot and stabbed, but he doesn't die during the violence. Uh, he dies about a week later when they take his um, dying body out of the building. Um, a police officer sits on his head as his body is taken away. Like it's just insult to injury doesn't even like come close to describing this. So it's not surprising that Dosti Spirit talks about how he was killed like an animal. Um, but also he reports how he was glad to die for such a righteous cause on one occasion, even, his spirit noted how he would grant forgiveness to the spirits of the perpetrators when they joined the spirit world. And, like, that's an interesting thing to think about, that, you know, he's, he dies in such a gruesome, gruesome way. And one of the things that his spirit says is that, you know, when the spirits of those who did this to me come to the spirit world, I will grant them forgiveness and I will ask for them to be you know, treated well in the spirit world because progress needed to include everybody. In, in the years after that Mechanics Institute massacre, the Cirque Harmonique uh, held lots of their seances. And you mentioned that it even reaches, the group reached its heyday even after Balmer dies. In those years, what what was a Sarcomonique seance like? What was it like to be there? What do we know about those those seances? Yeah, so I'll go ahead and warn you. This is going to be a long answer. Um, <laughs> there's a there's a lot to say about uh, trying to figure out a typical Sarcomonique seance meeting. Um, so, as a historian, it's annoying that uh, it's actually impossible to know exactly what a seance was like. Um, I suppose we could hold a seance and ask Henri. Um, but there's a lot of things that we can figure out from their records. Uh, their records, you know, sadly never give a play-by-play of how a seance happened. Um, but it seems like, especially as they got into a groove, the seances were pretty well organized. Um, so you can, you know, glean a lot of things from just little things that are noted in the margins. Um, they have this one um, list of rules for the Cirque Harmonique um, that give a sense of sort of how these seances are going to go. Um, it seems like they would spend the first part of any meeting preparing for communication with the, the spirit world. Uh, they would read a message or two that they would received at an earlier meeting. Uh, they would discuss that message. And this process of reading previous messages, discussing previous messages, was intended to create harmony amongst the group. And this is a really common spiritualist idea, that in order to successfully communicate with the spirit world, those who are trying to communicate first need to get into a harmonious groove. Um, so, you know, it's not surprising that the Cirque Harmonique calls themselves what they do. Cirque Harmonique is French for harmonic circle. 
And so, um, you know, you would create harmony and it was then important to keep that harmony going. Um, and so punctuality was very important. There's actually this fabulous message that I adore from one medium's mother who opens her message with something like, I thought we had well established that punctuality was important. And I just love it because it's like mom shames from beyond the grave. Um, the spirit of another member's father admonished him one day because it seemed as though he was thinking about ladies during one of the meetings rather than keeping on task. So, you know, it's not just that you need to establish harmony at the beginning of the meeting, but then, you know, you got to keep in tune with each other. Um, the spirits are going to communicate with us best if we're a very receptive um, community for them. So once that harmony was established, you could begin to receive messages. Uh, it seems like sometimes the medium might have been the one who recorded the messages in the seance records. In other cases, it seems like the medium was clearly, a, the person writing the records was not the medium, but the medium was relaying what they were told. But this is part of the stuff that's not ever clearly detailed in their seance records. Like, so, so-and-so was getting this message and so-and-so wrote this down. But they might like make little notes about how this is um, by the hand of Henri in terms of like who's writing. Um, the records themselves are really neat and tidy. There's not much in the records that looks like automatic writing. There's a couple of pages scattered throughout that look like automatic writing, but I think that's pretty, I'm pretty sure that's Henri by himself, not at one of the meetings. Um, the messages are written down on neat and tidy with dates at the top uh, to note what day the message came on. And then at the end of the message, it's um, there's like a sign off from the spirit on the right hand side of the page. They almost look like letters. Um, some of these meetings were definitely very, very long. You've got, in some cases, 20, 25 pages um, recording a specific seance, which, you know, that takes a long time to handwrite out 25 pages. Um, you know, there's some clear sincerity of belief going on here. You're not going to spend hours doing something that you don't think is true. Um, and so these are long meetings. They're organized meetings. The spirits who appear is a huge array of people. It includes religious leaders, uh, Jesus, Confucius, Franz Mesmer of Mesmerism, uh, Emanuel Swedenborg, another visionary writer, all appear. It includes political leaders, former presidents like Abraham Lincoln, George Washington, Thomas Jefferson appear, as well as other political figures like John Brown and Daniel Webster. French revolutionary thinkers and actors appear all the time, such as Robespierre, Montesquieu, Jean-Jacques Rousseau, figures from the Haitian Revolution, Toussaint Louverture makes a few appearances, beloved local Catholic clerics appeared, as well as St. Vincent de Paul, spirits who needed to apologize appeared, uh, John Wilkes Booth gives a very brief message once that's basically like, I regret it, um, former Confederate leaders, including Robert E. Lee, appear, and apologize for their role during the Civil War. The spirit of Napoleon uh, appears a couple of times, and he gives this one great message about how he his spirit's not doing that great in the spirit world. He's got a lot to get over before he can progress. Um, and he talks about how people who thought they were so big on earth 
find that they are quite small here. And considering people love to make jokes about, you know, Napoleon's height and stature, I just find that really funny that his spirit calls himself small. Um, Other notable spirits like Pocahontas and Mrs. Washington appear a few times. Local friends and family appear. Local politicians appear. Um, Local celebrities, for lack of a better term, also appear, such as um, Captain Andre Caillou, a formerly enslaved man who died fighting in the Union Army. Uh, He has this massive funeral that attracted thousands of people and his bravery on the battlefield helped convince naysayers that black soldiers were courageous fighters. So he appears a few times and then unnamed spirits were also very common. Um, Those who sign their messages, your friend, a brother, or just with the letter X. And with such an array of spirits, uh, the messages broached a variety of topics. There were personal ones from family members. These were quite common Family members wanted to confirm that they were well in the spirit world. Many spirits delivered messages that explained the nature of the spirit world and reality more generally. They described what happened to a spirit after death, which would help the Sarkarmanique prepare themselves for entering the spirit world. And political messages were very frequent. Um, Messages that discuss the idea and the progress of humanity are all over the records. Messages from martyrs from things like the Mechanics Institute riot. Uh, They almost exclusively delivered political messages. John Brown never says anything that is not about black liberty. Uh, The cornerstones of French revolutionary thought, you know, liberté, égalité, fraternité, run throughout the records. So, so, so many messages denounce materialism, greed, and desire for power. You know, harmony is a very common theme. And so even when it's not overtly political things, these more subtly political ideas, things like, you know, materialism is something to be avoided. Harmony is something to aspire to. I would say these are a little more subtly political um, because they're giving some instruction about how society should be, how people should act with one another. These are all over the records. Uh, how strong, you mentioned French revolutionary thought. How strong was the influence of French revolutionary thought on the Sir Carmenique? And there were other thinkers and writers at the time, like Frederick Douglass, who had a kind of big transnational vision for liberty and freedom, which was like evident in the North Star. The kinds of stories he was publishing that were following radical thought, radical writers uh, at various places around the world. How how kind of global or transnational was the Sir Carmenique's thinking? The Sir Carmenique's thinking was incredibly transnational. Um, French revolutionary thought is hugely influential on them. And they're, they're receiving messages from French revolutionary thinkers and writers. And they're receiving messages that are clearly influenced by French revolutionary thinkers and writers. And it makes sense. Um, You know, the kinds of some of the books that were very popular in New Orleans in the late antebellum period were books about the French Revolution, were histories of Haiti that included descriptions of the Haitian Revolution. Henri himself, you know, is the son of Haitian refugees. Um, They're... Their thinking is always very local, but also very global. Um, so they're, 
The ideas of the French revolutionaries thinkers are both in their messages and they're visited by spirits of French revolutionaries themselves, like Montesquieu, Rousseau, Robespierre, uh, the Haitian revolutionary leader Toussaint Louverture. And the idea of these men, too, are present in so many of the spirits' messages. You know, spiritualism has this great ability to mediate the memory of the French Revolution and its promises for a Republican society. And that act of mediation offers answers to the politics and violence of post-war New Orleans. You know, when we think about the French Revolution, this is a revolution to take power from the land-owning elite, the ancien regime, and put it with the people. Um, the French Revolution was so much more than the storming of the Bastille in 1789 and the guillotine. It sparked a new way of thinking about political systems and the organization of society. So, you know, spirits reference things like the genius of 89, which is a reference to the storming of the Bastille. Many of them will conclude messages with things like Vive la Liberté, you know, the very famous battle cry of the French Revolution. And it makes sense that these francophone ideas would find such resonance with the Cirque Harmonique because the Cirque Harmonique saw themselves as dealing with their own aristocracy. You know, whites who had become powerful from slavery were their own ancien regime to deal with. And as long as that aristocracy ruled, the people couldn't be liberated and no one would have real equality. So, you know, the spirits espouse ideals like living by a social contract, divine friendship, brotherhood. These are ideas that come up in the writings of these French revolutionary thinkers. Um, and in a true republic, the people's voice mattered. Um, it's, it's important, though, to note that there was some regret, too. Uh, Robespierre's spirit regrets the terror. You know, he's like, yeah, maybe we spilled a little too much blood with the guillotine. But he also saw that violence is necessary for the success of the people. Um, and to your point about Frederick Douglass, you know, Frederick Douglass and the Cirque had a lot of similar views. You know, they both viewed slavery as immoral tyranny. They both believed that real religion uh, endorsed love and equality but it goes deeper than that, too. Um, you know, Douglas, in one of his letters to William Lloyd Garrison, uh, he writes something like, um, as to nation, I belong to none. As to nation, I belong to none. And the Cirque reminds me of that. You know, because of America's racial hierarchy and relationship to slavery, members of the Cirque had not been allowed to be full citizens. And they receive messages that eschew national identity in favor of humanity in general. Um, there's this great message from the spirit of George Washington in which he says, I'm not American. I am of humanity. Its flag is mine. And that coming from the U.S.'s first president and an owner of slaves, people, you know, that holds weight. One's main allegiance should be to humanity and the uplift of human equality. Both the Cirque and Douglas thought, you know, America could be a place of progress, but it will never be with slavery. Um, in that same letter to Garrison, Douglas says something like, um, America will not allow her children to love her. But the idea that the spirit's dedication to those French revolutionary ideas um, of liberté, égalité, fraternité, if the idea could take hold in America, we might be able to change it to where America might let her children love her. And when you're talking about Robespierre, 
believing that violence was necessary to achieve Republican democracy. Uh, did the Sir Carmenique kind of share that idea about the Civil War? How did they How did they think about the Civil War in the in the decades after when they were going through the throes of Reconstruction and the ongoing struggle and violence that kind of continued the war in their local frame? Um, how did they think about the fighting that had been done? So the spirits in the Sir Carmenique, they didn't want there to ever be a war. Um, they didn't like violence of any kind, but they also saw the necessity of the Civil War in order to rid the country of slavery. Slavery was horrid, um, and the spirits of both formerly enslaved persons and the spirits of former slavers told them this. So in order, to, in order for the idea to take root in the world, slavery would have to be abolished. And if it required war, then it required war. Um, and after the Civil War, spirits of many who were involved appear. Uh, so the spirit of Robert E. Lee apologizes for his leadership in the war. And he's not the only Confederate soldier to do, to, to do that. A, a number of Confederate soldiers apologize. Um, the spirits of Union soldiers delivered messages, too, about how they were continuing the march forward in the world beyond. Um, the spirit of Captain Andre Caillou, that formerly enslaved New Orleans man who dies on the battlefield of Port Hudson, he said again and again and again how he was glad to have died for the cause. So while violence should be avoided, fighting for a just cause was itself justice. You mentioned kind of at the top of our conversation that there were a number of spiritualist mediums who spoke from, you know, claimed to be speaking from native spirit guides, that there were people from native tribes. Uh, sometimes they were leaders. Sometimes they were young girls, uh, you know, and they were saying, okay, now I'm speaking in the voice of a, of a four-year-old native girl, and this is what, you know, territorial expansion or massacre she suffered. Um, did the Sir Carmenique ever receive messages from native spirit guides? They did. The Sirk received a couple of messages from uh, Native American spirits. They receive one or two from Pocahontas. They receive one or two from Montezuma, and they receive a couple from a few other spirits that they come right after a message from Pocahontas and their names are things like Pacoa, which kind of sounds like an attempt at a native American name. What's really interesting is they'll allude to things like uh, Montezuma has one where he sort of alludes to, you know, the, the old days of um, this is like Barbady, but their messages are actually kind of bland. Uh, which when compared with some of the white women on the Northeast coast who are almost doing these performances of, uh, so-called, uh, Indian squaws, it sort of makes the Sir Carmenique's interaction with native American spirits seem kind of boring. Um, we also talked at the top kind of about in general, 
what statesmen and political figures appearing in seances meant for spiritualists and their relationship to the past. But you've mentioned now all kinds of different figures who spoke to the Sir Harmonique in particular. Was there anything that was unique about the way the Sir Harmonique related to these historical figures, whether it's George Washington or, I mean, in the case of Henri, uh, getting a message from Toussaint Louverture about, you know, about the French Revolution, thinking about his place in the Haitian Revolution, all of that would have taken on a particular charge, right? Um, is there anything that distinguishes maybe what was going on with the Sir Carmenique from the other kinds of general things we could say about spiritualism and its relationship to the past? Yeah, I think, um, I think so. I think the Sir Carmenique's own flavor of spiritualism is deeply influenced by where they are and deeply influenced by the kind of society that they want to build. Um, they're pretty unique in the sense that the spirits taught the Sir Carmenique that race didn't exist in the spirit world. Um, one's race only exists with the body. Uh, they call the body the material envelope. And this is something you leave behind when you die. You know, it's just something that houses your spirit for its short time on earth. And so when you think about it, then the spirits taught racial identity isn't what's important. The value that you have, the value that you have as a spirit, that continues on. Um, so the Sir Carmonique is pretty unique in this sense that they didn't see race as something that structured the world beyond this one. In fact, the spirit world would be a racial utopia in the sense that racial identity and, you know, the hierarchy that comes with it doesn't exist there. Um, and spirits reference this a lot. Uh, Confucius spirit affirmed that there's, uh, he said something like on one occasion, how there's no different races, really, um, because we're all children of the same father. Um, there was another spirit who got pretty theological on this. Um, and he claimed that, you know, if Jesus had been black or to put it in the spirit's um, own words, you know, he said that if Jesus had possessed a black envelope, meaning body, uh, he said that, you know, Jesus would have been disowned by many people. And what a poignant thing to say. I mean, so many of these white Christians, he was arguing, would deny their own savior if he appeared before them as a black man. And so the spirits taught that race should not matter, but they also recognized that it did here in the material world. And they lamented that fact. It's sad in them that Americans place so much value on racial identity. Um, in Abraham Lincoln's first spirit message, he, he asked the rhetorical question at one point, is it your fault if God created his children with different colors? And so the practice of the Sir Carmonique the, their particular interaction with these major political figures is deeply influenced by the kind of society that they want to build. And by interacting with, you know, spirits like U.S. President George Washington, Haitian revolutionary leader Toussaint Louverture, radical abolitionist John Brown, you know, they're able to put themselves in part of a long history of progress. 
you know, the idea progressed and you could track its progress in history. Um, and the Sir Carmenique, I think, would have liked to have imagined themselves as a step in that progress. Um, let me use an idea of the Sir Carmeniques here. So they understood that spirits, um, after they died, they ascended what they called the ladder of progress. Um, the spirit world was organized by the ladder of progress. You continued to learn and become better in the world beyond this one. Um, so, for example, the spirit of Napoleon shared that he was stuck groaning at the foot of the ladder of progress, while other more luminous spirits were moving along. Uh, in one of their record books, there's this little drawing of the ladder of progress tucked in the pages. Um, and as you move up the ladder, you see good characteristics develop, things like persistence and patience. And at the top of the ladder is this little drawing that looks a lot like contemporary images of Jesus. So to use the Cirque's own concept of the ladder of progress um, to explain or to think about the particular weight of people like John Brown and Toussaint Louverture appearing to them, you know, they, they believed that humanity writ large was also on a ladder of progress. And figures like John Brown and Toussaint Louverture, they helped push humanity along the ladder of progress. And the Sir Carmenique wanted to be a part of that story. They wanted to be one of the rungs on that big ladder of progress of humanity that's moving us along closer and closer to the idea. The thing that I've been thinking about, you know, we're asking a number of people to talk about spiritualism and gender, gender and power. But uh, I didn't ask you to reflect on gender in the Sir Carmenique. Um, would you be able to just kind of off the cuff uh, riff on that a little bit? Yeah, totally. Um, so I think one of the really interesting things when it comes to gender in the Sir Carmenique is Carmenique is composed primarily of Afro-Creole men. There's occasionally... Um, Female guests, you know, maybe someone's wife, uh, a friend's widow, a sister um, at the meeting. But the Sir Carmenique's core membership is all men. Um, the overwhelming majority of spirits that they interact with, at least those who are gendered, you know, the unknown spirits, I guess we can't know their gender. But the overwhelming majority of spirits they interact with are men. Um, which, you know, they're interacting with public figures that they knew. So I guess that's not a big surprise. But there's then sort of this, you know, there's on the few occasions that they received messages that, you know, bluntly said something about gender. And this usually had to do with messages that would say something about the uh, proper relationship between men and women, um, which was things like, you know, a couple of messages about how men should take care of women. Uh, they would receive a few messages about how, I can't remember who these came from, but they get, they get a couple of messages that talk about, oh, so Jean, the spirit of Jean-Jacques Rousseau tells them that uh, women are not to be treated as playthings. Um, the spirit of Thomas Jefferson also says this, which considering his rape of Sally Hemings is, is always very interesting. Um, 
They also get a couple of messages from spirits that talk about how women should be, which is interesting considering that the Sir Carmonique is all men and they're getting messages about how women should be. Uh, the spirit of Valmore has this one message where he more or less reiterates what's known as the Madonna whore complex, that women are either these beautiful, wonderful, virginal mothers, which is what they should be, or they fall into loose behavior and prostitution, um, which doesn't give, you know, a whole lot of agency for women to make their own identity. They've got a few messages from this um, French romantic writer. Um, she was a noble woman, and I'm blanking on her name. Um, she was a noble woman and always signed off with her her title. And uh, she wrote these letters with her daughter that were later published and sort of held up as this um, ideal of what women, romantic era women should be. She delivers a couple of messages to the Sir Carmonique, which usually kind of told them, hey, don't forget about women. Women have some pretty cool ideas, too. Women should be a part of the conversation. Um, treat women well. Don't treat us like material objects and playthings. Um, and the spirit of Mrs. Washington, she has this one message. It's one line long. And she more or less just says, like, remember the ladies, um, which is a famous <laughs> line of Jane Addams to her husband during the the you know, early constitutional congresses where she tells him, remember the ladies and the spirit of Mrs. Washington echoes that to the Sir Carmonique, though it seems like they don't take those mes messages necessarily to heart because women occasionally attend meetings of the Sir Carmonique, but because um, when they do have guests there, they'll usually they usually make some sort of mention of it, but it's not all that common. Um, it seems like Adele uh, Henri's wife attends some of them, but, you know, she's also wanting her son to be educated in the local Catholic school. So it seems like it's a primarily male enterprise for the Sir Carmonique. What was Henri doing with his life outside the Cirque uh, in the late 60s, early 70s? So he serves a term in the Louisiana legislature uh, he serves on a school board, not the school board of his father, but for public schools. He works at a hardware store. Um, he, his house catches on fire in the mid seventies. Um, and it seems like he loses everything. It's not clear if the seance records were at his home at that point or someone else's home. Uh, cause I sometimes wonder if he ran back into his burning home to save his seance records. Mm. Um, but he's, they've got a pretty respectable home, um, in the Treme neighborhood, uh, kind of living a new Orleans middle-class what we might call middle class for the reconstruction period, um, life. You mentioned that, uh, early on Henri had his, uh, his struggles with the Catholic church. Did the Cirque in general have an approach to the Catholic church in New Orleans and did it change at all over the decades when they were meeting together? 
So most members of the Cirque would have grown up in the Catholic Church. They were baptized. They were married in the Catholic Church. Um, in fact, there's a couple members of the Cirque Harmonique that the only places that I've been able to find a mention of their name outside of, you know, scribbled in the margins of the seance records is in the um, like baptismal records. Mm-hmm. So they grow up in the Catholic Church um, they have a very, I would say, interesting relationship with the Catholic Church. You know, the Catholic Church in New Orleans supports the Confederacy very strongly during the Civil War. Um, there's this one very outspoken abolitionist priest who's threatened with excommunication um, and has his church shut down. Uh, priests regularly would refuse to give Eucharist to um, black Catholic men in Union uh, uniforms. There would be ceremonies. The spirits would refer to these ceremonies uh, blessing Confederate flags um, during the Catholic Mass. So the Catholic Church locally is in support of the Confederacy, even during the Union occupation of the city. Mm -hmm. Um, And the spirits deliver tons of messages about the materialism and greed of the Catholic Church and its priests. That the Catholic Church, it wants money and secrets, money and secrets, money and secrets. And that's what priests want too. They come to your door and they want you to tell them all of your family secrets. So then they have all of your personal information and then they want your money too. Um, And so the institutionalism of the Catholic Church, you know, which was something that made it politically progressive early on is sort of offering this place where you could rebuild family despite slavery's attempt to destroy black families, it beco- the Catholic Church then becomes this power-hungry, greedy thing that's trying to destroy um, black agency. So they've got this very critical view of the Catholic Church. But then one of the most common spirit guides who appears throughout the tenure of the Cirque Harmonique is the spirit of St. Vincent de Paul, mm-hmm. um, which when you think about it more is not all that surprising. You know, St. Vincent de Paul is a champion for the marginalized. He's a champion for charity. So it it's not all that surprising that he would remain a saint for um, the Cirque Harmonique as well. And there was a pretty active St. Vincent de Paul society in New Orleans at this time. So, you know, it's a name that had cachet for progressive Catholic thought. Um, and so you've got Catholic spirits who are appearing, uh, French revolutionary priests are appearing um, and being critical of their own institution. Um, so it, it, there was this way in which like the institution of Catholicism was severely criticized in the spirits um, messages, but radical Catholic figures were celebrated as, um, you know, beloved spirit guides. Into the 1870s, as the White League uh, seizes power in New Orleans and starts to dismantle any kind of gains that had been made under Reconstruction in New Orleans, did that inflect the kinds of spirit messages that the Sir Carmenique was getting? It did. Um... So there's the, what I would call sort of the heyday of the Cirque Harmonique, which is in the early 1870s, where they're receiving political messages frequently. 
After the Battle of Liberty Place, which is in September of 1874, this horrible three-day rogue rule of New Orleans by a white supremacist terrorist organization. Um, During that, the spirits of Mechanics Institute riot martyrs appear to the Sir Carmenique and encourage them to keep the faith that their rights will be maintained. Um, But there's a spirit, I can't remember who it is now, but there's a spirit that tells them sort of paraphrase kind of also tells them to be careful um, that looking for retribution is definitely not a good idea. And I think there's sort of a warning in that of we're holding dangerous ideas and it's, this is a place that is increasingly becoming more and more dangerous to hold to ideas of equality. And so in, it seems like actually starting in late 1875, most of the seance records for the last two years are mainly just on re. Um, and that's something that actually makes me really sad to think about. You know, other members had joined the spirit world. Some had moved. Um, some fell away from the group. And there's a way in which the spirits promise that the idea could take hold and blossom in our world. That was a dream that was slipping further and further away as reconstruction began to really demonstrate the failure that it was. And so as that's happening, there's the messages are less and less politically potent. Um, especially when it seems like it's it's just Henri um sitting there by himself the messages lack so much of the bite of earlier years. Instead, he receives a lot of messages that reinforce that he's not alone, um, that the spirits are still with him. Some of them might contain these sort of bland calls for progress. Um, But actually, it's really just sad to me. I think about him sometimes just sitting by himself at a table, a table that used to be full of vibrant conversation about the potential of what the spirits spoke of And now it's just him. Um, I'm sure the seance records offered some comfort. Um, But in the end, it's just him and the records end in November of 1877 as Reconstruction itself comes to a close. Mm. It's a sobering note. Um, In the following decades, spiritualists were still practicing. And... There were attempts to formalize spiritualism across the U.S. to build institutions, uh, you know, the Morris Pratt Institute in the Midwest, uh, the the National Association of Spiritualists, or maybe I got that wrong. I think it's the National Spiritualist Association. Yeah. Um, what did it look like towards the end of the century? Uh, what, from from your perspective, studying spiritualism broadly and studying the Star Carmenique. Um, in the later years of the 19th century, what was spiritualism's significance or, or position kind of in the American religious landscape? So around the turn of the century, spiritualism is still pretty strong, but it's in the process of changing. Um, it's taking on a little bit of a different flavor, I think. So 
you still have people practicing at home, but increasingly I would say spiritualism is sort of leaving the home parlor and more, I mean, it had always had a public element to it, but the public element seemed like it was becoming more and more important. Um, So you've got like the rise of psychical research, including the work of William James impacting spiritualism, where you've got some people who are doing psychical research who are identifying spiritualism as a hoax, others who are saying there might be something to this. Um, You've got people reading the work of Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, both the Sherlock Holmes books, but then also some of his other writings on spiritualism. The particular sort of taste, I think, that spiritualism at least leaves in my mouth around 20th century is it's much more public and it has less of that sort of private in-home feel to it. Um, it gets a big bump in popularity after World War I. Um, you know, as, as with the Civil War, people look for continued relationships with the dead after so much death plagues you. But you've also got the rise of, you know, all of the, the flurry of patents that are coming through the U.S. Patent Office uh, for what would become the Ouija board. So there's this, I don't want to sound like I'm saying there was no sincerity in spiritualism anymore, because I'm certainly not saying that. But it increasingly, in what I'm looking at, has a little less of that closed, private, quiet feel. And I think there, there's been an experience for a lot of religious communities of seeing whether they would say it's commercialization or co-option, seeing something that is earnest and devotional become something that is public and marketable. Um, experienced as a loss, right? A degrading. Is is that a dynamic that you see in the later decades of the 19th century in spiritualism? I think there, I think there is some of that, but then there's also this really savvy response to that. So you have the development of spiritualist communities um, in places like upstate New York or Florida. Mm-hmm. Like um, yeah, yeah, that that take what might sound as like this nostalgic lament for, you know, back when spiritualism was, you know, not commercialized and they've actually had some of the, their success and maintain the longevity of their communities in part because of that public facing element of their practice. Um, so I think maybe just the, the main thing to always remember is, Spiritualists are, they're innovative. Um, You know, spiritual experimentation is one of the most American things that there is. And spiritualists innovated on that and continue to innovate on that and remain relevant because of it. That's beautiful. Hey folks, it's Aaron here. I hope today's interview helped you deepen your understanding of everything involved in the world of spiritualism. But we're not done yet. 
We have more interviews to share with you, so stick around after this brief sponsor break to hear a preview of next week's interview. Open a limited-time 11-month certificate at Kemba Financial Credit Union. At 5.25% APY, it's more than triple the national average, plus it's a safe and secure way to grow your money. Visit your local branch or kemba.org slash cd for details. Offer expires May 31st, 2024. APY equals annual percentage yield. Restrictions apply. $500 minimum and $250,000 maximum deposit. Advantage status required. Comparison based on bank rate average. Federally insured by NCUA. Next time on Unobscured. There are many accounts, not just then, but later on, where you really have to wonder whether they develop a clairvoyance, because some of them are inexplicable, and it's threaded throughout the book. But there are those other incidents. But anyway, it finally gets to be so big. And meanwhile, the churches, of course, are horrified. They think these girls are witches. They are communing with something they shouldn't be, communing with the dead. There are death threats against them, and they have to be, you know, very careful where they go. And some very religious clergy and people in Rochester threaten to kill them or run them out of town or tar and feather them at the least. Unobscured was created by me, Aaron Mankey, and produced by Matt Frederick, Alex Williams, and Josh Thane in partnership with iHeartRadio. Research and writing for this season is all the work of my right-hand man, Carl Nellis, and the brilliant Chad Lawson composed the brand new soundtrack. Learn more about our contributing historians, source material, and links to our other shows over at historyunobscured.com. And until next time, thanks for listening. Unobscured is a production of iHeartRadio and Aaron Menke. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.